Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Combat Literature, Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. A persistent theme in our coverage of Africana philosophy has been the acceptability of violence as a tool for resisting oppression. Perhaps the example most likely to leap to mind, especially for North American listeners, will be the contrast between the nonviolent direct action of Martin Luther King Jr. and the by any means necessary motto of Malcolm X. But the debate, as we've seen over the course of this podcast series, has a much longer history. In 19th century America, it was above all David Walker who made the case in favor of violence. His appeal instructed black readers to kill or be killed and not to trifle with those who sought to murder and enslave them. This incendiary message moved many readers, but few black activists were willing to endorse it without qualification. You may recall how Frederick Douglass wavered over the question and that on one occasion, when he did recognize the need for violence, he met with rebuke from Sojourner Truth, who asked, Frederick, is God dead? Even T. Thomas Fortune, a journalist who was no stranger to fiery rhetoric, qualified his calls to arms. For him, violence was justified only after peaceful and political solutions were tried, and as a response to violence from the oppressor. He invoked the right of self-defense, saying, Tell me that I shall be exterminated as you do, if I exercise that right and I will tell you to go ahead and exterminate if you can. This is a fairly straightforward rationale for violence, and indeed a fairly uncontentious one. As we noted when discussing Malcolm X, few are so committed to pacifism that they completely reject the use of violence in self-defense. Most people believe that if it does come down to killing or being killed, then killing is morally licensed. Still, you might think, at least have the decency to regret doing it. Maybe this is why many have been disturbed by the first and most famous chapter of Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth. Titled simply On Violence, it is an exploration of the practical and psychological need for violence in the struggle against colonialism. At no point does Fanon seem to regret this need. It has been observed that if Fanon had spoken of armed struggle rather than using the blunt word violence, it would perhaps have occasioned less outrage both at the time it was written and ever since. Speaking of the time that it was written, when we last spent time with Fanon before the break, he was completing his training in psychiatry at Lyon and publishing his first masterwork, Black Skin, White Masks. In 1953, after writing a competitive exam, he became qualified to hold the position of chief medical officer at a psychiatric hospital. This enabled him to make the fateful decision of going to Algeria to take up a position as chief medical officer at Blida Joinville, a psychiatric hospital not far from the capital of Algiers. Fanon could not have known at the time that only a year later the Algerian War of Independence would break out. He found himself treating people on both sides of the conflict, from a pair of Algerian teenagers who killed a French boy, to policemen whose mental disturbances clearly stemmed from their work torturing the suspected members of the National Liberation Front, or the FLN, its French initials. Fanon first made contact with the FLN in 1955, and became a covert supporter of its efforts by, for example, accommodating and treating fighters at the hospital. This is the Fanon who traveled to Paris in September of 1956 for the Congress of Black Writers and Artists. At this important meeting, discussed at length in previous episodes, Fanon contributed a paper entitled Racism and Culture. 
It has some striking overlap in ideas with culture and colonization, Césaire's contribution to the conference. Just as Césaire spoke of colonization robbing colonized peoples of the faculty of self-renewal, Fanon spoke of the problem of cultural mummification under the colonial system. In a demand for decolonization more pointed than Césaire's, though, Fanon asserted that the struggle against this cultural condition requires an ultimate commitment to the total liberation of the national territory. There is only a brief reference in passing to ongoing events in Algeria in this speech, but we know Fanon was thinking quite a bit by this time about what such a commitment required of him. Finally, in December of 1956, he openly took sides, resigning his post at Blida with a letter that includes this memorable phrase, if psychiatry is the medical technique that aims to enable man no longer to be a stranger to his environment, I owe it to myself to affirm that the Arab, permanently an alien in his own country, lives in a state of absolute depersonalization. Fanon, his wife, and their infant son, Olivier, moved to Tunis, the capital of Tunisia, for he was formally expelled from Algeria. In Tunis, a center of FLN activities in exile, Fanon continued to work as a psychiatrist while becoming increasingly involved in the party. He contributed regularly to El Mujahid, the party's newspaper. In 1958, he traveled as part of the FLN's delegation to Accra, the capital of Ghana, for the All-African People's Conference. This is, in fact, where he first made a name for himself as a defender of violence. Speaking specifically of settler colonies like Algeria, Kenya, and South Africa, he proclaimed that there was consensus on the principle that only armed struggle will bring about the defeat of the occupying nation. He welcomed an idea that was proposed at the conference, an African legion, a volunteer fighting force that would draw from the entire continent and intervene in struggles against imperialism, like the one in Algeria. In 1959, Fanon published his second book, known in translation under the title A Dying Colonialism, although its French title literally translated is Year 5 of the Algerian Revolution. This title, which treats 1954 as a turning point in history, makes it obvious that Fanon was intellectually consumed by his involvement in the Algerian struggle. The book explores a number of different aspects of Algerian life in relation to the revolution, the veil, the radio, the family, the medical establishment, and differences of political stance within the white population of Algeria. The chapter on when and why Algerian women wear the veil, or take it off, in the context of the revolution is among Fanon's most interesting and also most controversial discussions of gender. The following year, Fanon began officially representing the provisional FLN government in Accra, the capital of Ghana. He was ambassador not merely to Ghana, but to sub-Saharan Africa in general, a position that made Pan-Africanism of a certain type a major theme of the last years of his life. It is important to say, of a certain type, though. While he was already critical of negritude and black-skin white masks, this critique became, if anything, an even more significant part of his perspective as he dedicated himself to the Algerian Revolution. Fanon's vision of pan-Africanist solidarity, unlike Negritude, was not racial in character. Its focus was international cooperation for the sake of national liberation, which is why he used his position as ambassador to work toward the goal of an African legion. He did not, however, have much time left. The year 1961 would turn out to be his last as he was diagnosed with and ravaged by leukemia. In the spring of that year, as he worked on his last book, the one we're about to discuss in this episode, Fanon got the chance to have some long conversations with Jean-Paul Sartre, who, as we noted in the previous episode, was among his biggest philosophical influences, along with Césaire. 
These conversations took place in Rome and also included Sartre's partner, Simone de Beauvoir. According to Beauvoir, Fanon revealed himself in these conversations to be personally repulsed by violence, even when the violence was practiced by the FLN in their struggle for liberation in Algeria. He took this squeamishness to be a typical intellectual weakness on his part. Whatever his personal horror of violence, though, Fanon's philosophical commitment to violence, expressed in the first chapter of Wretched, is indeed unflinching. It goes well beyond the more or less uncontroversial idea that it is justified in cases of self-defense. Fanon claims that violence is essential to the dissolution of what he called the colonial situation. Echoing one of the major points of black skin, white mass, he says that it is the colonist who fabricated and continues to fabricate the colonized subject. The result is a Manichaean world with two antithetically opposed groups. He compares this to the mutual exclusion of Aristotelian logic, alluding to Aristotle's view that every meaningful proposition has an opposed contradictory proposition, with one true and the other false. It is that opposition, that duality, that is undone through violent resistance. Fanon can sometimes sound like he is just saying that violence is meted out to the colonizer as an equal and proportionate response to the colonizer's violence. Thus he writes, Colonialism is not a machine capable of thinking, a body endowed with reason. It is naked violence and only gives in when confronted with greater violence. And again, the very same people who had it constantly drummed into them that the only language they understood was that of force now decide to express themselves with force. The colonial regime owes its legitimacy to force and at no time does it ever endeavor to cover up this nature of things. Such passages may help to convince the reader that the oppressive colonizer just gets what he has coming to him, but the real rationale for violence goes deeper than this. Fanon's idea is that violence is the only way for the colonized to escape from the status of thing or animal so as to become a human with agency in the world. The problem of being flattened by racism into an inert stereotype, as detailed in Black Skin, White Masks, is apparently solved and wretched through anti-colonial violence. Violence is essential to the process of attaining agency because it is uniquely a rebellion against social norms. Fanon says that because decolonialization sets out to change the order of the world, it is clearly an agenda for total disorder. One cannot replace violence with, say, diplomatic dialogue and rational argument because challenging the colonial world is not a rational confrontation of viewpoints. It is not a discourse on the universal, but the impassioned claim by the colonized that their world is fundamentally different. Again, this situation is one of the colonists' own making because the society he has created offers no place to the colonized within its moral order. Since the colonist and his society are definitive of what is good, the colonized can only be bad or even absolute evil. From the colonist's perspective, which insidiously works its way into the perspective of the colonized, the colonized people don't even have distorted or defective values, they have no values at all. In Wretched, Fanon frequently refers to one kind of character type who's incapable of making the leap to violent resistance. He calls this person the colonized intellectual. This is someone who has internalized the values and modes of thought of the colonist culture and is therefore incapable of imagining the sort of rupture that would be involved in true decolonization. Usually, the highest aspiration of such intellectuals is to take the colonist's place, out of a barely veiled wish to be assimilated to the colonizer's world. 
or else they may turn against the colonist and go native, embracing the traditions of the colonized culture. While this doesn't allow the intellectual to escape from the Manichaean trap, the opposition between the colonist and his negative image, the colonized, it at least represents a setback for the colonial enterprise. Every colonized intellectual who crosses back over the line is a radical condemnation of the method and the regime. Another reason that violence is essential as opposed to merely useful emerges from the psychological condition of the colonized subjects. Having been victimized for so long, tremendous aggression has built up within them, and this aggression needs an outlet. Indeed, if Hanon sees the desperate attempt of the colonized intellectual to identify with the values of the colonial culture as a kind of violence directed against oneself. In the more general population, a colonized country like Algeria will inevitably be rife with criminality and violence amongst the colonized subjects. Fanon observed that the crime rate dropped dramatically once the war for liberation against the French began, since this provided an outlet for all that pent-up rage. Fanon sums up this point by saying, at the individual level, violence is a cleansing force. It rids the colonized of their inferiority complex, of their passive and despairing attitude. It emboldens them and restores their self-confidence. Fanon speaks of how the muscles of the colonized are always tensed because of their deep-seated feeling that the colonial situation treats them as something other than the humans they truly are. The colonized is dominated, but not domesticated. He is made to feel inferior, but by no means convinced of his inferiority. He patiently waits for the colonist to let his guard down and then jumps on him. If the chance does not come and the colonized never resists, mental illness is a likely outcome. A later section of the book on colonial war and mental disorders describes how victims of torture in particular lose their grip on morality and even the need to hold consistent beliefs, something Fanon calls the most painful legacy we have encountered in this war. Colonial brutality has taught these people that power is the only thing that counts, and violence is the way to defy this power. Between oppressors and oppressed, force is the only solution. This is Fanon at his most provocative, daring to claim not just the defensibility, but the psychological value and necessity of violence, when most observers would see it as, at best, a sometimes necessary evil. At least one significant observer was thoroughly convinced by Fanon, though, Jean-Paul Sartre. We do not know Sartre's reaction to being treated as the executioner of negritude in black-skin-white masks back in 1952 but it is easy to see that the Fanon he met and conversed with in Rome in 1961 deeply impressed him. He agreed to contribute a preface to Wretched, which is striking in its frank endorsement of Fanon's view of violence. For Sartre, Fanon's book was a revelation. He was convinced by it that decolonialization was an unstoppable force. As he puts it in the preface, we Europeans were the subjects of history, and now we are the objects. The power struggle has been reversed, decolonization is in progress, all our mercenaries can try and do is delay its completion. While Fanon encourages us to look forward to the attainment of independence from colonial power, he also issues prescient warnings about the challenges that former colonies will encounter with the advent of independence. Fanon once wrote that the point of the struggle was not to achieve one barbarism replacing another barbarism, one crushing of man replacing another crushing of man, he wanted Algerians and other African peoples to build new nations that would not just reproduce old oppressive structures. A particular danger was posed by clashing economic interests within these nations. A relatively small middle class or bourgeoisie would have every reason to maintain good relations to the old colonial power 
and to discourage violent upheaval. This rear guard would thus try to negotiate a peaceful transition. But being far less wealthy than their European counterparts, the African bourgeoisie lacks any real bargaining power and tends to become a mere puppet of the former colonists. This yields the classic situation of neo-colonialism, nominal political independence combined with complete economic dependence, facilitated by co-opted leaders, businessmen, and intellectuals who fear more radical change. A distinctive feature of Fanon's analysis here is his almost completely generic presentation. He talks about types and classes, the leader, the intellectual, the nationalist politician, and rarely gives concrete examples. As one of Fanon's biographers has said, any reader who turned to The Wretched of the Earth for a description of Mali's political system, of the FLN's political program, or of Senegal's groundnut industry would be sadly disappointed. Fanon's prescriptions are broadly Marxist in spirit. Economic activity should be decentralized and linked to the political consciousness of the people, who must be encouraged to realize the humanity that was so long denied under colonial oppression. As he vividly puts it, during the period of nation-building, every citizen must continue in his daily purpose to embrace the nation as a whole, to embody the constantly dialectical truth of the nation, and to will, here and now, the triumph of man in his totality. If the building of a bridge does not enrich the consciousness of those working on it, then don't build the bridge. Buffanon also makes significant adjustments to classic Marxist theory. In particular, he sees the peasantry, and not an industrialized working class, as the main driver of revolutionary change. In the parts of the world with which Fanon is concerned, it is, he claims, only the peasants who have so little invested in the colonial situation that they have nothing to lose. The fourth chapter of Wretched, On National Culture, includes material that Fanon originally delivered at the Second Congress of Black Writers and Artists held at Rome in 1959. After an epigraph that Fanon draws from Sekou Touré's contribution to the same conference, the chapter begins with these words, which are certainly among the most often quoted in all of Fanon's work, each generation must, out of relative obscurity, discover its mission, fulfill it, or betray it. He speaks here, as elsewhere, of the mission of eradicating the conditions of colonialism. Focusing on culture, he points out that colonized peoples are taught that their history is worthless, and that if the colonial power leaves, the country will slide back into barbarism, degradation, and bestiality. One natural response to this is something we've already mentioned, the attempt of some colonized intellectuals to assert the value of the traditional ways. These intellectuals work away with raging heart and furious mind to renew contact with their people's oldest inner essence, the farthest removed from colonial times. And they find an ally in European anthropologists who fetishize African culture and seek to prevent any changes to it. Since the colonial condemnation of African cultures is, as Fanon puts it, continental in scope, the partisans of these cultures naturally react in kind and praise the virtues of Africa as a whole. This is, of course, what happened with the Negritude movement, as figures like Senghor tried to articulate the special contribution of African peoples as a whole. As we know, Senghor thought this contribution would complement that of the Europeans, joining emotion to reason so as to yield the civilization of the universal. Fanon is having none of it. He objects that there is not one Negro, there are many black men. The same is true at the level of cultures or nations. Every culture is first and foremost national, said Fanon, so any celebration of African culture as a whole is bound to be a dead end. 
compounding the problem is the fact that the enthusiasts of traditional culture look to the past, not the future. In black skin, white masks, Fanon had already been pretty scathing about this tendency. He wrote, In no way do I have to dedicate myself to reviving a black civilization unjustly ignored. I will not make myself the man of any past. I do not want to sing the past to the detriment of my present and my future. Uncovering a glorious African past might be interesting, but that does not make it important or pertinent to the challenges facing Africans and people of African descent today. In that earlier text, he said that uncovering a correspondence between some black philosopher and Plato would be nice, but entirely irrelevant to eight-year-old kids working in the cane fields of Martinique or Guadeloupe. Likewise, in Wretched of the Earth, he remarks that the glorious past of Songhai does nothing to address modern-day economic deprivation. According to Fanon, intellectuals tempted to pin their anti-colonial hopes on the power of culture are putting the cart before the horse. As he puts it, to fight for national culture means in the first place to fight for the liberation of the nation, that material keystone which makes the building of a culture possible. If you want to flourish in culture, you need a free nation, which means that the priority must lie with supporting the liberation struggle. This does not mean, however, that artists can do nothing but wait. They can create art that advances the struggle. Writers, for example, can strive to create a combat literature, which calls upon a whole people to join in the struggle for the existence of the nation. We saw in the last episode that Fanon concluded black skin, white masks by affirming the value of the individual and the need to transcend racial difference. Is the conclusion to Wretched of the Earth similar? This brings us to the relationship between Fanon's two masterpieces, which is still a matter of scholarly debate. We have so far emphasized continuity between the two works in this episode, but we will end appropriately enough for Fanon by exploring whether we encounter conflict rather than harmony in this case. Here is the famous last sentence of the conclusion to Wretched, and thus the book as a whole. For Europe, for ourselves, and for humanity, comrades, we must turn over a new leaf. We must work out new concepts and try to set afoot a new man. We can see that a sense of shared humanity is important to Fanon here, just as in Black Skin, White Masks. What draws Fanon to this concluding sentiment, however, is his claim that the third world, as he calls the nations emerging from European colonialism, must make a conscious effort to avoid recreating European institutions. He claims, humanity is waiting for something from us other than such an imitation, which would be almost an obscene caricature. In Black Skin, White Masks, Fanon prescribed an existentialist remedy, staunchly defending the radical freedom of the individual. Here at the end of The Wretched of the Earth, it looks as if his preferred treatment is instead to find meaning in collective identity, whether that means one nation in particular or the third world as a whole. These last couple of episodes should have given you a powerful dose of Fanon, but he's obviously an author who more than merits an interview with a specialist on his thought. So it's just what the doctor ordered that we found such a specialist to come on the podcast, Lewis Gordon, author of, among other books, What Fanon Said. To find out what Gordon said to us about Fanon, Join us next time here on The History of Africana Philosophy. <music>